Welcome to Raz Talk, the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production. Brought to you by Raz Tech, the premier publication for Raz professionals. This podcast is sponsored by Innovacy. Innovacy, aquatic solutions built for life. Welcome to this episode of Raz Talk. I'm Katerina Muya, Raz Talk co-host and editor of Raz Tech and Hatchery International Magazines. I'm joined today by my co-host, Brian Vinci, director of the Conservation Fund Freshwater Institute. Thank you, Kat. You know, the RAS produced Atlantic salmon sector has come a long way since its inception in the late 1990s. According to your own publication, Hatchery International Magazine, the first handful of RAS were effectively used to produce millions of Atlantic salmon smolt in North America and most other major salmon producing countries around the globe. Since then, the industry has continued to strive for success with companies reporting successful harvests since 2018. It has taken time to get the technology there though, with RAS technological components such as microscreen filters, oxygenation systems, culture tanks, and biofilters evolving over the past 20 years. Today, we continue to look at how to improve technology and RAS facilities to produce high quality salmon. However, in order to be successful, we must look at the biology of Atlantic salmon as well, focusing on genetic improvements to not only create quality stock, but to avoid diseases, poor growth, and early maturation. These issues have been experienced less frequently in the past few years, but must be addressed in order for the industry to continue moving forward and eliminate these challenges. Here to discuss with us today is Dr. Jonas Jonasson, Production Director at BMK Genetics and CEO at Benchmark Genetics Iceland, and Christopher Good, Director of Research at the Conservation Fund Freshwater Institute. Dr. Jonas is a biologist from the University of Iceland who acquired his PhD in genetics from the Agricultural University of Oss in Norway. CEO of Benchmark Genetics Iceland and production director at Benchmark Genetics, Jonas is responsible for all production sites across Benchmark Genetics for Atlantic salmon. Christopher, director of research at the Freshwater Institute in Arlington, Virginia, earned his Bachelor of Science from the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, and went on to earn his Master of Science, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine, and PhD from the Ontario Veterinary College. Chris began work at the Freshwater Institute in 2007, and his research has focused on improving the sustainability of aquaculture industry through enhanced health and welfare of farmed fish, with a recent emphasis on Atlantic salmon grown to market size in closed containment water recirculation facilities. He's involved in peer-reviewed and industry publications, lectures at conferences and workshops, and has frequent interactions with government, industry and private nonprofit stakeholders. He has been a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Preventative Medicine since 2017 and a certified aquatic veterinarian with the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association since 2014. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining Brian and I today for this episode of RAS Talk. You both have an impressive list of credentials and years of experience in the aquaculture industry. Can you both talk to me a bit about your journey through the years in the aquaculture industry and a little bit about what your focus is on today? Jonas, we can start with you if you'd like. Thank you very much, uh, Katerina. It's a pleasure to be on board and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I've been there, I've been in the industry for a while and uh, back in uh, 1989, I started my career by gathering some eggs from 
Norwegian stocks in Iceland and uh, created a base population for genetics in, in Salmon in Iceland. And uh, from 1991, uh, we have basically been doing land-based farming here in Iceland. Even though it's a flow-through system, and this was mainly done to produce eggs, and the idea was all year round. At that time, there was a lot of requirements for eggs uh, into Chile, and as you know, they are they are off season to us, or or the other season. So, uh, the idea to came up on producing eggs all year round, and uh, that has been a success, and is is very much a success now. And um, at the same time, being on land, it is a very biosecure system to avoid getting any of the diseases that happened in, in cage farming. And since then, I've been, uh, in a way, a privilege of being in a very joyful work going through the industry as it has developed. And you can imagine when I was studying in OWASP for my PhD, we made plans for genetic plans for a industry which was around 100,000 tons. You can imagine now it's, it's, it's getting closer to two and a half million tons. So it's been a journey. Great, thank you, Jonas. And Christopher, if you'd like to go through just uh, your experience in the industry and what you're working on today. Sure, um, thank you, Kat. And yeah, thanks uh, as well from me for the invitation to speak today. I'll go back. Uh, my career in aquaculture started in the late 90s. I was a technician at a fish health laboratory in uh, Ontario, Canada, uh, working with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources fish culture um, hatchery system. So we were a diagnostic lab and screening those fish for pathogens. And it was around that time I became interested in aquaculture in general. I realized that there weren't a whole lot of vets at the time that were interested in, in um, aquaculture. So I kind of chose that path. So I did a concurrent uh, a DVM and PhD uh, with a career in, in aquaculture in mind. And it was actually great timing because uh, when I defended my PhD, I, I did it on a Friday and the, the Freshwater Institute job came up at just the same time. And so I I drove down to Shepherdstown and gave the same talk on Monday, and uh, thankfully they had me on board, and I've been there since um, 2007 and ever since. And I started off as an aquaculture veterinarian and um, working primarily on the fish health aspect of our uh, research program, and now I'm the director of research at the institute. And it's you know it's a great place to work. It's it's all open book. We're we're trying to help the industry expand in a, in a sustainable uh, manner. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a, a great team all around. So um, I feel really privileged to be in that position. Thanks, Chris. Uh, for the listeners um, who put two and two together, Chris and I both work together at the Freshwater Institute. In fact, we've had our offices next to each other for the last oh, 14, 15 years, I guess. Um, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Chris to talk about some of the research um, that we're doing at the Institute and specifically what you're working on. And before we jump in, I, I'd like to quickly uh, ask Jonas um, about Benchmark and Stofen Fisker. So many of uh, the folks in the industry, the salmon farming industry know uh, Stofen Fisker as a you know, premier source of Atlantic salmon eggs. 
And uh, of course, uh, it appears now that the name is gone, but uh, all, all you folks are, are still around working under the benchmark umbrella. Is that correct? Yes, it is. We just changed the names of, uh, of Stopfish Group in last January to Benchmark Genetics Iceland. But the strain itself is still called Stopfish Group. So the name is going to be there. So we are going to improve the, the Stopfish Group strain moving forward. And uh, what we've done is that we have now created production systems uh, in Salten in Norway, which is in northern Norway, and it's in principle based on the knowledge in, that we have in Iceland. So we have a year-round surplus of eggs from Norway now. And at the same time, we have the same in Chile. So we are building up a production in Chile as well uh, for all season by secure strains based on our strain from Iceland. Got it. Thank you for that. Let's get into the questions about uh, the genetics of Atlantic salmon. So Jonas, what are some of the current genetic improvements needed for RAS produced Atlantic salmon in order to eliminate some of the sector's more pressing challenges? And then how are you actually making these improvements year over year? Basically, the most important trait for all, all um, uh, aquaculture is to improve growth rate. And, and so we are mainly focused on that. Uh, when it comes to land-based farming, we of course have some challenges around um, maturity that I will, I will call upon later. But as the industry will move forward, I'm sure we will have other traits to consider, especially if it's related to health, this can be diseases or, or whatever. And, and then moving forward, we, we have, uh, breeding also for flesh color and fat content and so on and in principle the, the quality of the flesh so that's going to be uh, the main focus but the most important one is growth rate right and so how do you um, get the information you need from the growers and then make the improvements um, year over year uh, from the broodstock you have what does that process look like well, the process is that we are we are now uh, we have tested our families with uh, land-based uh, producers before, and we are putting up programs in different countries to do that. But we have to remember that as we have been land-based in Iceland, we've done we used the information for growth rate on land in Iceland for ten generations, and during these ten generations, we have doubled the growth rate uh, since we started back in '91. So it's a continuous process. And at the moment, we think that uh, we can uh, get, uh, we, we can very easily produce a four or five kilo fish in, in let's say 20 to 24 months based on different systems. But a continuous selection of that is gonna improve about one week a year. So it's just gonna be a continuous process. Right. So um, you mentioned maturation earlier and this is something that we've worked on and, and Chris and, and the research group has worked on for the past oh seven to ten years. Um, can you explain how early maturation is uh, taken into consideration when you're doing your genetic improvements for the Atlantic salmon broodstock? Oh yes, um, in general maturation is not a problem when it comes to maturation in the northern hemisphere we control that in cages but with lights and so on but when we come on land we have challenges with maturation especially 
especially if we're in fresh water, it's less in salt water, but in fresh water, especially on higher temperatures. And this is, uh, let's say, over 11, 12 degrees, you know, when it's fresh water. And to overcome, we, we have considered just to increase selection on the trade, but moving forward, we saw a much simpler method was to go on um, producing all female stocks. So we have in-house in uh, all females for all the land-based producers in the world, whenever. So we, we created a, a cryopreservation bank, so we, can, we have frozen milk of, of sex-reversed females, so we have um, uh, milk for that to go forward. And moving on that, and very interestingly, we, we did some research also with the Freshwater Institute in Virginia, you know, that um, using triploids. And they, we can use those, and these will never mature, but there is some skepticism of, of, uh, of doing or using triploids, but we can do it. So in the short version, the first thing is to do all females, then we can do all female triploids, but I will come later on what our challenges are in the future in this field. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jonas. It's really interesting to see what you're kind of doing on the genetics and breeding side. Uh, Chris, I'm actually really curious to know what research is currently being done on the Freshwater Institute side to eliminate these challenges experienced in RAS-produced Atlantic salmon. And additionally, how are you and your team working with breeders like Jonas to overcome these issues? Thanks, Kat. Well, yeah, I mean, there's still plenty of challenges uh, remaining in, in RAS production of salmon. And, you know, as was discussed earlier, early maturation is probably one of the biggest ones. And for any listeners who, who's, who aren't certain as to um, how, you know, how this impacts a farmer, uh, mature fish at harvest are generally a downgraded product. So the gonad growth, uh, often pulls out pigment from the flesh. And so you wind up with a pale filet, uh, which you won't receive a premium price. And so a farmer really wants to avoid early maturation. And lately we've been assessing the impact of, of rearing temperature on, uh, on early maturation in, in salmon uh, post molds. Uh, so we're actively uh, researching that area. Another challenge uh, specific to, to rats produced salmon is off flavor. That's a, um, it's essentially a, um, an earthy musty smell that uh, can be imparted upon uh, fish that are raised in rats and fish need to be purged essentially off flavor uh, after production. So there's a period of time where they are in a purge system uh, where they are, are off feed and they're receiving water that uh, from a system that's been disinfected that doesn't have the biofilms that produce off flavor compounds. Uh, so, you know, if a farmer was was able to avoid that process entirely, that'd be a, a wonderful thing for the industry. So, again, we're actively researching that area. Uh, in terms of of you know working with breeders like Jonas, um, our current USDA. Um, project plan, five-year project plan, has two different strain studies. We we're just wrapping up one now looking at steelhead, and we're starting our next, um, our next trial looking at Atlantic salmon. So basically, we're, we're looking at a range of strains within each of those species, trying to determine which 
uh, perform best in a RAS environment. You know, these, these fish have been uh, bred over the years for performance in more traditional systems. So which of these strains will actually do better in, in a RAS grow out? So um, yeah, we're just wrapping up steelhead and I think the Atlantic salmon study is going to be very interesting. We're going to provide Jonas with some additional information uh, with the uh, fish that he's provided us. So uh, he'll be able to assess uh, more in depth uh, than we can the, the uh, genetic uh, variation and the performance of individual um, strains within the Stokenclisper strain. That's where we're at right now. And um, yeah, I'm really hoping that we will be able to, uh, to tease out which strains uh, work best in a RAS environment and provide that uh, information to industry. Great. And Chris, you also mentioned um, off flavor being kind of a challenge that um, the industry is looking to overcome, which is very specific to um, RAS and RAS technology. I'm wondering if there are any other um, challenges um, posed when you are working in RAS um, and with RAS technology when looking to improve Atlantic salmon genetics um, that may not necessarily be experienced when you're working on, let's say, um, Atlantic salmon produced in traditional land-based net pens. Well, yeah, there's a, there are many differences between the RAS and, and traditional net pen environments. Um, and again, I think, you know, the previous breeding has been more geared towards those environments that are more traditional. So, you know, the, the move to RAS, there's some challenges there, of course. Differences between RAS and net pens would be things like higher rearing densities, or uh, a different water quality profiles. Uh, RAS water is obviously quite different from, from uh, coastal net pen water. But you know, at the same time, there's, there's plenty of benefits involved in, in RAS. And that, for me, I think that the, the most important ones would be that it's a stable and predictable rearing environment. And you can really, you know, because it's closed contained, typically you can, you can adjust your uh, environmental parameters to optimize the rearing environment for production. Uh, and also the fact that you know, th these are land-based systems, they can be biosecure just, just like um, um, you know, production in other sectors like poultry and, and swine. Uh, you can really, if, you know, if you've got your biosecurity protocols down pat, then you can avoid entry of some of the, the nastier uh, obligate pathogens. Um, that, uh, you know, you just wouldn't have that same sort of luxury in, a, in an open system, uh, which would also uh, have, you know, perhaps less stable and predictable rearing environments as well. So I think there's, there are, there are challenges with RAS, but there's plenty of benefits as well. And so I think really what we need to do when we're focusing on breeding fish for performance in RAS is to you know, to look at things like uh, rearing densities, for example, fish that would be able to um, perform best at a, a typically higher rearing density and within uh, water quality profiles that are different from, from traditional net pens. So things like, for example, something like uh, higher, you know, higher TSS or um, uh, nitrate, nitrogen, those sort of things, uh, high, higher parameters and levels of parameters that you would typically see in, in, in a net pen. You know, Chris, you mentioned a couple of the parameters specific to RAS, like TSS, but you don't see us moving forward asking the breeders to work on things like hydrogen sulfide uh, tolerance or uh, off-flavor uh, tolerance, do you? I don't think so. I, 
honestly, I think the uh, the H2S issue should probably be solved in a different manner than than breeding uh, for, mm-hmm. for resistance for it. But uh, yeah, no, I think I think something like like what I was mentioning, the fish that were you know they they can perform better in a in a higher density environment, and I think that's what we're providing for the USDA study in general. Is that this? There are many parameters within RAS that uh, we can we can look at as sort of a, a black box essentially. And so, you know, the strains that per, will perform better in our semi-commercial uh, system will, you know, hopefully that'll be transferable to other uh, RAS facilities. Right. You mentioned that uh, brass does provide a, a very controlled environment that can be kept biosecure, and that's super important for. Um, for RAS, fish health and welfare. Um, as improvements continue to be made to the genetics of Atlantic salmon, what are some specific biosecurity measures that you feel must be incorporated into a RAS facility to optimize these, uh, these strains? Well, I think if we're, if we're talking biosecurity, I think the probably the biggest one would be selecting strains that are, that are resistant to specific diseases that you might encounter in RAS. So think more opportunistic genes. And I know that the USDA for, you know, for rainbow trout and for Atlantic salmon are, are looking at these sort of things and trying to breed for disease resistance. But I think also too, what Jonas was talking about earlier about developing perhaps, you know, late maturing or, or uh, even sterile type, uh, type strains. I think that helps biosecurity as well because early maturing fish um, you know, they, they do have a tendency to be more susceptible to opportunistic pathogens just because it's a fairly, it's, it's a stressful sort of process for them. So I think that is sort of part and parcel with, with maintaining good biosecurity. But um, I think there's sort of two parts to your question there. And I think the other is biocontainment. So if a facility really needs to consider biocontainment, and that would depend on, on where the site is. So example, a you know, a, a large facility in, in Florida um, might not have to worry too much about that sort of thing because escapes simply wouldn't survive in that, uh, in that, you know, outside of the outside of the facility. Um, the environment just is not conducive to to Atlantic salmon thriving. Whereas, you know, a, a similar facility in a place like Maine, for example, that might be a bit more problematic and potentially problematic, and and it would require, you know, some some efforts. Um, to ensure that uh, that escapees, uh, it wouldn't be an issue. You'd have to have some sort of physical exclusion methods uh, to prevent escapes, um, because otherwise there is the the worry that the, you know a potential escape might cause some genetic interference with wild stocks. You know, partic- particularly in Maine, where those are endangered. Um, we have talked a lot about the different challenges that are being experienced, um, especially when it comes to genetics um, in the Atlantic uh, salmon sector. Um, Jonas, are there any other challenges that may be experienced in RAS produced Atlantic salmon that maybe hasn't been discussed as much or isn't being discussed much in the industry right now, but really needs the attention um, from the industry in order to kind of drive the industry forward? I thought a little bit about that, and, and what comes first up in my mind is is basically having enough experienced people around, you know, because we have a, a lot of these producers who are producing producing rush system over, and there are a quite limited amount of people uh, 
when it comes to have a good training, a good background, a good experience in in um, in these rush systems. So I I really think uh, the challenge is just in a few years ahead of us is is to get enough people for to manage these systems. And I think that we've seen both what Brian and, and Chris have been doing in the States that it's very doable to produce a very nice salmon. But when you scale up into big volumes, their really good training and good experiences is the most vital important thing. Got it. And Chris, is there anything on your end that you feel maybe the industry isn't focusing enough on that needs improvements that we haven't really discussed yet today? Um, well, I mean, we've, we've talked about off flavor early maturation, but beyond that, I think there's some, there's just some baseline information and SOPs that still need to be established. Like we, you know, at Freshwater Institute, we've been raising salmon for you know, over a decade now, but it is really our own flavor of wrasse. It's, uh, there's things like, uh, how to, how to find the optimum salinity, photo period, rearing temperatures, all that sort of thing. That's the baseline info that needs to be looked at further in order to, to, to optimize production, um, you know, to, to optimize that environment for, for fish to, to thrive. Um, Jonas mentioned uh, the absences or the, the paucity of skilled labor, and I, I completely agree. I think that's, that's a major uh, hurdle moving forward is to getting getting enough trained people to run these facilities and I, I don't even those for example that might be trained to uh, you know to operate and and run a smoke production facility a RAS smoke production facility might might have a uh, I don't know if those skills are, are necessarily transferable for a, a complete land-based production because you're really dealing with some very different animals by the time they get to harvest size so you know, if we if we we really need to expand the labor force and and develop these uh, the skilled labor necessary to for the industry to move forward. And finally, the you know an obvious challenge is is economics. You know, it's it's pretty you know it's it's pretty difficult really in, in some ways to to start one of these uh, facilities up. You need a lot of capital up front, um, and so it's it's. It, at least in terms of the economies of scale in these larger facilities, it would be very difficult, I think, for, uh, for someone to break in unless they've got a, a major source of capital behind them. So, yeah, those, those two are probably the biggest, uh, biggest hurdles right now, I think, absence of skilled labor and, and the economic challenges. You know, Chris, you so astutely point out the, the economic challenges and We've done a little bit of work on that at the Freshwater Institute in combination with Sintef, and um, we know the the rate of return and uh, the cost of capital are are very important um, factors that go into the economic feasibility. Uh, but Jonas, you know what made the biggest effect on the economics in our study looking at land-based salmon farming was how quickly the fish um, could get to harvest size. So. Uh, the economics, when you're looking at a 24-month growout, um, were positive for land-based, um, especially if you could locate it close to the market. But if you could reduce the time from 24 months to get to five kilos to 18 months to get to five kilos, that would fundamentally change the economics 
by fundamentally changing the design because you're, you're no longer carrying that, that large biomass uh, for an additional six months. And in fact, you're trading that off for the next cohort behind it. So as we look for um, the future of the industry, I think you said a week, a year improvement, but what is the maximum you think you could get the, the fish to like to get to four or five kilos? Do you think you could get down to 18 months? Well, that's, that's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen because we have a, we we doubled growth rate in um, last uh, 28 years. We think we can double it again in the next 21 years. So it's just um, it's just uh, moving forward, and this is the way the industry is going to go. But um, I feel that um, uh, moving forward, of course, we will concentrate on on increased growth. You know, we're not gonna we're not gonna make any tremendous increase beyond the 15-20% uh, per generation on, on growth rate. But what we will fundamentally also do is that we will continue to um, do research on how we can make a sterile product, you know. Because if we have a totally sterile product, uh, you mentioned, you know, the the interactions in wild populations and so on. I, I don't really see that as a threat in land-based farms because you can very well avoid, you know, having grids and so on on the affluent. affluent. But moving, you know, when, when you have a sterile product and you increase growth rate all the time, it opens up more possibilities, for instance, on, on tolerance to high temperatures. You know, can we breed a population that grows very well on 16 to 18 degrees if you have a sterile product that, that's somewhere that i would like to see jonas as as uh, someone who you know participates in in the work at freshwater and um and uh listens to chris uh <laughs> um yeah having a, a product or a, a salmon that was more tolerant to temperature um without maturing or, or having other fish health issues uh, would be excellent because I would expect it, it to grow a little bit faster uh, just based on the, the temperature increase. But it would also uh, reduce the need for chilling. And at Freshwater, we spent the last three years installing um, literally hundreds of thousands of BTUs and chilling to get our temperatures down for, for the appropriate work. So uh, as a uh, as a potential stakeholder here, Jonas, I vote for temperature tolerant salmon. Keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's um, I, I totally agree, and this is you know moving forward. It's, it's an ongoing process. So in my in a way, the final word you know is is maybe recommendations or so on, but. What we need now is patience. You know, there's so much demand for salmon all over the world. And we just, just need to get patience to bring up new production systems like in RAS and land-based and so on. And, and we need patience to adapt our stocks to it, you know. But that will happen, don't worry. Good. Chris, how about you on, on the future? What do you think the the next steps are for uh, the RAS Atlantic salmon sector? and what do you think the next major milestone might be or innovation might be? Well, I think the next major milestone to me would be one of the 
one of the major traditional salmon farming companies sort of going all in and, and moving into land-based grass production. Uh, I, as far as I know, that hasn't happened yet, but I think if and when that happens, there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be a huge confidence boost in, in land-based salmon production. Um, and I think that's really going to open up the doors because these, you know, these companies can marshal a lot of resources uh, towards that, um, that, uh, that expansion into land-based. And uh, I think people will take notice of that and you, it'll open the floodgates. So I think that that would be a, a major milestone for the industry. And I think that's where we're going to see some, some major expansion. And I, I believe it will happen eventually. I'm not quite sure when, but um, hopefully soon. Yeah, I completely agree, and um, I think uh, our, our our good friend Froda would absolutely have, have agreed. Um, um, Froda Mathiasen as well. Um, I think he was moving that way with Grieg um, at one point. Jonas and Chris, thank you so much for sharing your time uh, with our listeners today. Yes, thank you both so much for being our guest today on this episode of RAS Talk. It was a pleasure to hear about your experience in the industry and kind of get your outlook on where the industry is kind of headed towards. So um, we'll be looking forward to that in the future. For our listeners, please don't forget that you can catch up to the latest episodes of the RAS Talk podcast by visiting raztechmagazine.com. Until next time, be well. This podcast is sponsored by Innova C. Anovasi, aquatic solutions built for life.